and welcome to Diversity Ever After, a Baker Donaldson DNI podcast. We are professionals focused on creating an honest and accepting space for ourselves, our community, and our listeners. Here at Diversity Ever After, we raise awareness of DNI workplace and social issues, we advocate for increased representation and inclusion, and we navigate uncomfortable but necessary conversations. Inclusion starts with I, so we invite you to listen and become in touch, in tune, and inclusive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Diversity Ever After. My name is Kennard Davis, and I am very excited for today's podcast. As in this episode, we are honored to have three distinguished guests join us to discuss law firm diversity efforts from an in-house perspective. I want to thank our three guests again for taking the time to let us interview them and for sharing their thoughts and experiences on the topic. Joining us today will be Marcus Brown, Danielle Ag, and Chris Walker. If we can, can we just start off with just everyone introducing themselves and uh, just saying what company they work for, their position, and just a, a little bit about their background? So uh, hello, Kennard, and thank you for the invitation to join you today. My name is Danielle Ag. I am a market uh, general counsel for the Verizon South Central Market. And uh, that essentially means that the states uh, between Florida and Nevada, I support uh, our network engineering organization and uh, the operations here uh, in those 13 states. I am responsible for uh, kind of supporting our um, West Territory uh, Vice President of uh, Network and um, all of his operations, the deployment of wireless and wireline uh, infrastructure across that territory, and all of the, you know, kind of government relations, compliance, whatever issues, you know, kind of come up, uh, contracts, you name it. It's been a great career here at Verizon. I've been here just over 22 years. I've been in this role probably for the last just over five years, and I'm based out of the Dallas uh, area. Uh, started out, graduated from University of Michigan Law School. Uh, started out in law firms for about five years, medium-sized firm, large law firms. Came to Verizon in '99 through MCI, its legacy company, and uh, been doing you know a number of different roles. I think I've had seven different jobs since I've been here and uh, have thoroughly enjoyed uh, every one of them because it's an incredible company to work for. Marcus, do you wanna go next? Sure, uh, and, and let me join Danielle in, in saying thank you for inviting me to participate in, in the program. Uh, I am Executive Vice President and General Counsel for Entergy Corporation. It is an, a, an electric utility that provides uh, service in Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. New Orleans is a separate company, but it's obviously within Louisiana. I am responsible for legal, ethics and compliance, uh, corporate communications, federal government affairs, sustainability, uh, and our CSR group, our corporate social responsibility group, and our cybersecurity group. So I have a lot of different uh, areas of the company that I support the business in. And um, been, been in New Orleans, been with the company for about 27 years. Prior to that, I was in private practice at Stone Pigman Law Firm in New Orleans. And I'm a Southern University graduate, both undergrad and law school. You know, I'm married to a, another lawyer and, and enjoying my relationship more than my work sometimes. So uh, it's, been a, it's been a great run. 
Hey, Chris, do you want to go next? I sure will. Sure. Thank you, Kennard. And, and I want to echo the, the sentiments of our panel members here. Thank you for inviting me. Chris Walker, I am Associate General Counsel at Jacobs Engineering Group. Been there here now for almost a little over 13 years. Uh, so I serve what we call our South region of the uh, Americas operation, which includes everything from Texas all the way across to the Carolinas, down through Florida and, and, and the Caribbean. So I pretty much do, if you name, you name it, I do it for that region and support our senior vice president that runs uh, that region. I think we have naturally been involved. We're an evolving company. We, we, we've grown through acquisitions and, and full service engineering consulting. Uh, if you name the, the type of engineering, we, we, we generally do it. And now we're, we're transitioning into more of cyberspace and, and cybersecurity and, and other solutions market. Uh, originally from Mississippi, I always considered myself just a poor old country boy from Mississippi. Uh, went to school there. Uh, People may, may have heard of Millsaps College, small liberal arts college, played football there, and uh, and then graduated from Ole Miss Law School, University of Mississippi, and then practiced a little bit in Mississippi for a few years doing M&A work and some other things, construction and, and, uh, and real estate, and then ended up uh, at Jacobs after working at a construction firm in Atlanta, and that's where I'm based in, in Atlanta, Georgia. So uh, I think I'll leave it there unless there are any questions. No, no, that's, that's great. I guess if we're going to start anywhere, I guess we got to start with what is diversity? You know, what, what does diversity look like from your perspective? Like most uh, companies, we have a pretty broad uh, definition of diversity. But I do like to say that diversity isn't just about race and gender, but it does include race and gender. And so those are areas that always have a, a tremendous amount of focus on them. But real diversity, you know, as as I think about it is how you define the quest for talent. And talent doesn't have a race, gender, sexual orientation, uh, a religious preference. Talent comes in all different types. And, and companies are always in pursuit of talent. And so if you want to attract talent and retain talent, and what I believe is the, you know, the, the differentiator for companies who will succeed in the future then you have to be able to attract a broad, diverse group of people who bring that talent to you. You have to figure out a way to, to harvest it, to develop it, and to retain it. And so, uh, and so for many companies, I know for our company, diversity has always been important, but it's particularly important now because a focus on diversity is really the focus on talent. And talent, again, is the differentiator, I think. So, um, so that's how I would define it in a, in a very broad sense. We share a very similar uh, definition of diversity. You know, Verizon has uh, long recognized that our employees are our greatest asset. And so for us, diversity is really a recognition that creating an inclusive and dynamic culture where everyone, and by everyone, I mean every race, ethnicity, national origin, religion, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability and veteran military status and age. So everyone, it kind of feels a sense of belonging and purpose. And when we do that, we're able to attract the best talent. We're able to develop our employees to their fullest potential and inspire our employees to build their careers um, so that we can continue 
to innovate and create the networks that move the world forward. That, that's what we do at Verizon. And we believe that our diversity and culture is a business imperative. And frankly, it's our competitive advantage. It's the reason why we are as successful as we are. Um, and that success uh, is good not only for employees, obviously, but it's great for our customers, our shareholders, and society uh, at large, because we believe we have a responsibility to all of those various stakeholder groups. That's what diversity means to us. Yeah, and I think all of those, for my purposes, I think all of that is encompassing what we are trying to do at Jacobs. And I would have to say that we have evolved in that regard since either, even since I've been at the company, uh, because there has been a definitely a mind shift uh, of working and doing all those things that we've mentioned here so far. Uh, but and the only thing I would add is is that you know naturally, I think of diversity as service. It's it's a service to your employees. It's a service to to the customers that you serve and to the population at large. So if if you are truly a diverse organization and teams and so forth, then you're serving those teams. You're serving everybody that's involved. And then for us, it's it's the ability for everyone to feel comfortable and bring their entire self. To, to bear on what they do and the purpose they bring to the organization, which it can only drive success and drive results um, that everybody's seeking and, and success in their organization. Do you all believe that companies and law firms are prioritizing diversity and inclusion? I think some yeah. are doing a lot better job of it than others. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a hodgepodge. You have some that truly believe in it and will drive that and move the needle and how they hire and, and to Marcus's point, the talent that they bring in and, and use uh, to serve their customers and clients, but others either just give it lip service or they will only put uh, any emphasis on it when they're forced to by their customers. But, you know, I, I think those are accurate statements, but I do think we're at a uh, an inflection point right now. Historically, there has been uh, a lot of reasons to not be optimistic about the ability to, to really grow a truly diverse workforce like we'd all like to have. But if you think about particularly where companies are now, you know, companies are really having to refocus. You hear discussions around ESG, but it's really about around the social and the governance piece. And uh, Daniela referenced it when she talked about the, sort of the four stakeholder groups. And so, what we are getting as companies is heavy focus from our investors that we be able to provide long-term sustainable value to those customers, employees, communities we serve, and the shareholders. And they believe that the way that you do that, and we believe it as well, is, is that you have to have a, an ability to engage all of those stakeholders in some meaningful way, which means you have to understand them. And you can't understand them if you don't have people within your organization who can help you do that. And so we are all reevaluating, you know, how we run our companies. We will have a discussion today about diversity and in law firms, but the people in companies will tell you that that conversation is happening internally from our board of directors to our executive teams all the way down to, you know, our line employees and how do we create diversity and at every one of those levels, and then how does that manifest itself outside of our companies and how we engage all of those stakeholders? And are we doing that in a way 
that's going to allow us to be able to be around to provide long value for a long time. Because the belief is that companies who can't address those issues the way I described just won't last. And so the inflection point is, given all that we've been through in the last 18 months to two years, and some of the focus areas that have been highlighted, will we get this right or will we do better going forward? But there is more focus on it now, and we'll see how that plays out. Well, Marcus, you you bring up a good point. How are you getting these law firms to bring in more diverse talent? Are you incentivizing them? Are you penalizing them? Like, What tactics are you using as general counsel to, to get these law firms to do what they haven't been doing for decades? Yeah, so thank you for that question. We, you know, before you asked that question, Kanar, the one question that I was going to send over to Marcus just in response to what he said was, you know, that you're absolutely right. We're at an inflection point, And I wonder uh, how long will the conversation be on diversity in the way that it is today. I, I agree with you completely that over the last two years, you know, certainly there's been more of a focus, uh, but how long will that continue? And I think the amount of time that uh, that will continue will, will depend in large part on how much we keep it in the conversation, how much we push our outside counsel, other vendors and suppliers um, to kind of not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And um, that's going to depend, I think, largely on how we track and measure, incentivize, penalize, whatever tools and whatever uh, ways and manners people or companies decide that they want to do that. Um, at Verizon, you know, we spend a lot of time tracking and measuring not only uh, what we're doing internally, to achieve our uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion goals, because it's not just diversity. Once you get the people there, you got to, you know, make sure that you're paying them in an equitable way. You got to make sure that they, that you are uh, creating a culture that allows them to stay and feel like they're uh, included, can be authentic, uh, have opportunities to be promoted, and all of that. So we track and measure all of that within Verizon, and I personally was very proud of us. Uh, in 2020, when we were able to publish our first human capital report, which is, you know, essentially our diversity report, where we demonstrated what our own internal numbers look like in terms of just the sheer numbers of people of all of those different demographics that I mentioned, you know, the pay equity that we have across those organ uh, uh, across each of those demographics, all of that. But in addition to looking at that internally, we're also looking to track and measure how much our outside counsel and our vendors and suppliers are achieving those similar goals. From a law firm standpoint, you know, we're looking for firms to have 25% of their billables coming from women and, you know, I, I guess I'll say racially and uh, gender diverse attorneys. Uh, so that's one of the things that we're reviewing annually. Uh, we we hope to get that number, uh, to increase that number, but you have to kind of start somewhere, right? And so we're having those conversations annually where we put out RFPs for different uh, work to be done across different departments. Uh, we're looking at and expecting them to respond to certain diversity questions uh, to help us get a sense of, are they a company, a law firm 
that has prioritized diversity in a similar way to how we've prioritized it. So those are some of the things that we're doing both internally and with our partners that we'll continue to do. And, you know, I'm proud to say we were doing it before two years ago uh, and we'll continue to do it uh, for the years to come. Uh, to cut in re real quick, and, and I hate when this happens, but Dan, what's a RFP? Request for proposal. So many times whenever we have a large body of work that we have a number of firms doing, uh, we send out a request for proposal for firms to, to tell us how they can get the work done most efficiently and cost effectively, who they'll staff it with, kind of, you know, what is their best proposal for the work. And two years ago, we did that with our um, firms that support our network leasing, for example. We went from 70 firms uh, to about 25 firms. Baker is one of those 25 and the work that we've given to Baker over the years has increased because of Baker's uh, willingness to step up in the area of diversity. Uh, so that that has really been uh, a successful program for us. And we've been able to keep costs uh, at a manageable level, too. That's a big part of an RFP, obviously, but diversity is as well. Chris, do you have anything to add? No, no, I think Danielle, what she's explaining is, is the process that Jacobs has been going through. Like I said, we're evolving in this area, and I can be honest and say that when I first started the company, this was not a priority at all. So uh, over the past, when we had our new CEO, Steve Demetrio, come in, uh, I guess now it's been close to six or seven years, uh, we could see the true shift in, in our company as, as it relates to diversity, inclusion, uh, and all of those efforts to make sure that people could bring their whole self to work and be feel comfortable, be compensated fairly and treated fairly and promoted fairly. So uh, as far as the the legal department goes, I've, I've been tapped to uh, basically head our efforts to streamline our process of outside counsel engagement and to uh, make sure that, that, you know, that equity, diversion, and inclusion all are all part of that, that process. Uh, we started that uh, probably about three years ago, and we put a, a somewhat of a uh, system in place. We went through the RFP process, what we call the conversion of, of our outside counsel to to pare them down from I don't know 200 or however many two or 300 firms that we had to a, to a more workable number. And and a part of that equation and metrics was diversity inclusion uh, on all levels. Uh, like I said, not just race and gender, but but age, uh, sexual orientation, and everything. And, and the problem that you'll run into sometimes and what we run into as an international company is you, you, you have different metrics, you have different terminology, you have different mindset. If you're talking about the UK or if you're talking about the US or if you're talking about Canada uh, or if, you, if you're talking about over in Poland or whatever, and so you get some pushback from firms that either have an international footprint or only operate in the say in the UK or or, or China and, and so place in places like that that do not see the same metrics or track the same metrics or do not feel comfortable in in in, in those realms about diversity. Uh, and so we're trying to come up with a system and, and, and implement a system that will allow for some of that divergence of thinking and different ways of looking at uh, equity and diversity 
and inclusion, but uh, but we're doing that now, and 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 it will be, and and the, and the consequences of that for firms that will not embrace that mindset and and actually put you know real efforts and show metrics that improve over time, they will not get the business that either they had before. Uh, it, it will slowly erode as those matters end, and then or we'll just seek to shift those matters if we need to, but. That's the mindset that we currently have and what we're trying to implement now. You know, I was talking to a judge about this uh, that was at a major firm, and she was saying that these policies have been around for some companies for years. But, like, does the policies not really have teeth? I think, Marcus, you brought this up of saying, will this be kind of like a phase? Will it, will it just pass? But are these policies real? Did, are you really, have you ever really taken business away for them giving you pushback or, or ignoring your diversity efforts? Or is this something that we're now doing? You know, not for my words, I, I won't put the person name out there. Another GC said, is it just marketing really at this point? Well, I think you, uh, you know, I would go back to something that Danielle said that I think is really important. Before you go out to law firms and try and drive change in law firm, you really have to have your own house in order. I mean, you know, if you don't have any credibility showing up to a law firm talking about driving a diversity policy you know, in that firm if they look at your your team and your team isn't diverse. And so that takes us back to really diversity begets diversity. And so if you have a team that's diverse, if you have a leadership team, you know, within your corporate law departments that, that's diverse, that is the best way to man, maintain focus on that, those issues when you go external because one, People do like to engage with people that they're familiar with. But the broader the base of people you have internally, the broad, the more diverse that, that, that looks going to be when they get out. Secondly, it's more difficult for a law firm to show up consistently with a non-diverse team when my team is diverse. The optics sometimes speak louder than the policy. So when Danielle talks about the metrics and all of the things that we do to follow these programs, those are exactly right. But there's no better way to drive this than to figure it out in your own department and then to have that be part of your values. And your values are demonstrated by, you know, the teams that you have and the way that they do their work. And then that is much more easily, you know, something that you can push in a law department. So I don't want to miss the point of how important that is. And then that goes back to, you know, how do we bring people in? You know, how do we allow them to develop? How do we put them in leadership positions? I mean, you know, and, and when, when all of those things happen, uh, it makes it easier to be successful with your external policies, with your vendors and your suppliers. Yeah, that, that was well said, Marcus. I, I guess I would just kind of summarize that as the policies are just as successful as uh, the people who enforce them uh, want them to be. And so if you, you know, the diversity begets diversity, I love that. Uh, that's absolutely right. And if you don't have a diverse um, set of employees, set of leaders, um, board members continuously driving and pushing um, for the enforcement of whatever policies you have on diversity, then they cannot be successful. I think all of that is poignant and, and, and correct. I think the, like that's what we're all striving for within our respective companies is to uh, to make sure that, you know, like my grandmother used to say, the face that you give to the public is the face that's always 
uh, at home as well. So it, you can't just, like you said, Kennard, it, it can't just be a marketing tool or, or, or just, you know, something you can put on, on some empty uh, empty advertisement. It should be that your your house is, is organized in that same manner before you go out and expect the same from others. So I, I totally agree. The next question for me then would be, I think Marcus said that this harvest develop retain issue. Are you all having issues with getting diverse individuals in house at your legal departments? I'm happy to go first and say we we are not really having those challenges at Verizon with um, hiring and retaining uh, diverse talent. I think because we have a great reputation as uh, a company to work for. We have, you know, any number of awards from all kinds of organizations saying how uh, much people, how much employees enjoy working at Verizon. And once people get to Verizon, they see that they have opportunities for development and advancement. They see that, you know, we have 10 ERGs, for example, employee resource groups. Um, that help to amplify the the voices of and the interests and concerns of all of those various demographics that I mentioned. We have informal uh, groups within the organization that allow people to have smaller groups that they um, can connect with and uh, feel supported by. You know, one that I'm especially uh, proud of at Verizon, we we have our own little version of CCWC, if, if people know Corporate Council Women of Color. Uh, after going to that conference for several years, uh, we decided to start a CCWC Verizon group. And so it's women of color across the legal team. We meet quarterly and, uh, and it, it's just so gratifying to get on a call once a quarter and have, I think we're up to 40 or 50 women who attend these calls on a quarterly basis just to talk about the issues and, and interests uh, of that group. Um, so all of those kinds of things uh, really do make people feel like they want to be at Verizon. They go out and they tell their friends. And, you know, when whenever new job descriptions go up, we get so many uh, applications and, and um, demonstration of interest because people have heard it's a great place to be. And that's the reason why, you know, at Verizon, the average tenure of an employee is about 11 years. People get to Verizon and stay there. That's why I've been there for 22 years, because I, I had my two kids there and continue to you know, be promoted and have interesting work that I love to do. And why not have a career at a place like that? Right. So that that's our story of Verizon. Uh, it's a pretty good one. So what do you say to law firms who say they have that problem with minority talent? saying they, they can't get qualified minority applicants or candidates for their law firms or be able to retain them. I, I asked them what's going on in their house that won't allow them to hire and retain that talent. I asked them where they're going to look for that talent because we don't have any problem finding talent. You know, are they going out to uh, diverse bar associations? Are they going to HBCU law schools, for example, you know, what are they doing about uh, maintaining a good culture within the firm so that once they get people there, they stay there? Uh, because, you know, so many uh, people start out at firms and I think law firms are a great place to start. I started at one, got got the best uh, legal training I could have hoped for. 
But then when I was ready to start a family, I decided I needed to go elsewhere. I wanted to go in-house because I thought it would be a better fit for me uh, to be the kind of mother that I wanted to be to my children. So why is it that I had that feeling that I wanted to leave a law firm to be a working lawyer um, and a working mom? Uh, so those are the kinds of thing, you know, pushback that I uh, that I have for uh, people that I talk to who provide that kind of response. Yeah, that that's an interesting comment that you make. You know, that's reflective of what I'm sure what you hear law firms say. And I'm all I'm I'm particularly amused when I hear it now because when I started practicing law back in 1988, people would say oh, well, we could find more people like you, we would hire them. And I would say, I know 30 people like me are better. You know, I mean, and that was in 1988. And I'm hearing the same thing now. And so, you know, so there, there are a couple of additional points I would make. One is, if you're looking for talent, where you look for that talent is one element of it, but how you develop it. And, and one of the things that we've decided we need to do is we really do need to partner with law firms to develop the talent that we need. Because when you start talking about the kinds of lawyers that a corporate law department is going to rely on, litigation is a piece of that. But the general type litigation that a lot of lawyers gravitate to is not, you know, the regulatory or the compliance or the, you know, the SEC or some of the things that are bread and butter for companies. And, and so what we realize is that, um, if we want to get diverse lawyers in some of those more discrete areas of practice where we rely on them a lot, then we have to be willing to invest with the law firm in training those people. Because, you know, law firms, their business model is bill hours, make money, and if you ignore their business model for your policy, you know, uh, outcomes you want to achieve, you're never going to get the law firm aligned. And so if you go to a law firm and you say, what we really rely on a lot of regulatory, you know, utility regulatory lawyers. Kennard is a litigator, but we believe he could be a really strong regulatory lawyer. We will pay for him to be on the file. Some of that's going to be learning, but over time, he's going to actually pick this up. And five years from now, he'll be a strong regulatory lawyer which is a unique area of practice, but it's one of the more lucrative areas of practice. Whereas if he was doing something more generic, one, there's more competition in the generic space. And secondly, you know, it probably isn't gonna pay the same way because it's not the unique nature of it. So, so to allow lawyers to break into those areas where there's a high need for us and the most lucrative ones, we've had to partner with law firms in some instances to help develop those people in those areas so that they will be available to us, you know, because it doesn't matter that we have to, you know, pay a little bit now for the first couple of years. We are going to be doing this as long as we're in existence. So if you have the long view, somebody who we started this with 15 years ago is now a 15-year veteran regulatory lawyer. That goes a long way towards achieving some of the goals we're talking about, and we've done that. That's another piece of it. And the last thing I'll say is, um, Sometimes you have to be very targeted and when you go into a law firm with business, who you're going to empower. Because, you know, if the business leads to the billable hours, leads to the money, and money drives power in a law firm. 
And, and so um, when I came into this job about 10 years ago, one of the things that I took away was this concept of we are your legacy clients. And so if there's a relationship partner in the firm, every time a new file comes into the office, that partner generally gets credit for the work, even though that partner no longer really has a relationship. I believe you earn that relationship every time you do work for us. And that, you know, and we want to talk to the lawyers who are doing the work. We can't change the way that law firms pay people internally. But if we make it clear that we don't view anybody as a legacy, you know, lawyer for us or a legacy, you know, or a relationship lawyer who owns our files, it empowers those lawyers internally to get out from underneath that. And then once you get a file where you're actually making money on from other people working on the file, then you can help drive policy and change in law firm. And we don't have to do that because if you're empowered, if you've got a voice in your law firm, then all of those things we like to see occur for women and minorities and, and, and other diverse people will occur because they can drive that in their law firm if they have the power to do that. And the power comes from the work. And so, because it, it, it's very difficult, even with the ability to take away business, we don't always have visibility into how people are doing what they're doing in their law firms. And when people can be very honest with you, sometimes they'll tell you there are things going on that you all don't even know. And the only way to combat that is to have people who are in that room who have as much stroke as the other people in that room who are making policy, who are making decisions, hiring, you know, staffing cases and all those things. So we've been trying to figure out ways to help shift the power dynamic in the law firm and not just have that be superficial, but have that have some depth to it. And I think that is, uh, you know, so you see how all the what Marcus and everybody is saying is coming back full circle to, first of all, you got to have the buy-in in your own organization before you can use some of those mechanisms to push the law firms as well, because if you can't get the resources internally to, to, to have that law firm put those diverse candidates on those files that Marcus is, is talking about, because you're also trying to keep your numbers down and, and your spend and on outside counsel down, and you won't allow for those diverse candidates to grow and learn and, and get into those areas where it's regulatory or, in our case, whether it's, it's engineering and construction and solutions-type uh, litigation then it won't hold you to meet your own goals that you that you say and set for those law firms. So you have to have that buy-in internally first. And then it just depends on whether the law firms will themselves now take that. If you give them that leeway, will they do what they say that, that they are going to do by both first finding the talent and then growing that, that talent internally by allowing them to be up front and speak to the client and run meetings and 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 attend the hearings and and speak at the hearings and and all those things that lead them to a a not only being a better lawyer but having that cachet that Marcus is talking about for ownership within the uh, the law firm. So uh, it it just comes in a full circle. But you have to first have your house in order and then bring that to the law firm and say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is how we're growing, and this is how we're evolving as an organization. Are you on that journey with us or not? I agree. I, I thank you all. What I'm hearing is that we need more 
minority relationship partners and that we need to give the, the minorities that are in law firms that are associates or lower up more substantive work so they can develop into being those relationship partners for you all. And I agree with that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Diversity Ever After. We hope you found this podcast helpful and insightful. Many thanks again to our distinguished guests for sharing their perspective on the matter and for taking the time to discuss this topic with us. It is very much appreciated. And with that, we bid you farewell. Until next time. Thank you for listening to Diversity Ever After, a Baker Donaldson DNI podcast. We hope that this conversation has made you feel more seen, valued, and empowered to become in touch, in tune, and inclusive in your day-to-day interactions. Remember that inclusion starts with I. Until next time, please like, comment, and share this episode.